BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Boy, it's starting to look like spring here in Portland. I hope the same is true wherever you are. What an absolutely beautiful day. We've got a lot on the program today. Frankly, there's a lot in the news that's worth discussing and and considering and all that sort of thing. We're going to start out with investigating January 6th. I keep hearing... You know, we need a commission to look into this. I don't think we need no stinking commission. How can the Republican Party reinvent itself as a rational, normal, mainstream political party as opposed to a radical insurgent movement? You know, I think it's a real question, and I think it's an important question. We have crimes from treason to murder that were committed on January 6th. Crime fighters need to find the people involved. And I don't think a commission is the way to do it, at least not now. I mean, you can have a commission later on when you want to look back and retrospect and all the evidence is in and all the people have been nailed and all that kind of stuff. But we need to find out first what happened on and in the time leading up to the January 6th overthrow of our country, including the meeting at Trump Hotel January 5th, where Tommy Tuberville and a Tuberville and a bunch of these guys, Don Jr. and a bunch of them, apparently, we don't know for sure because nobody has yet kind of broken omerte, you know, the code of silence, but apparently we're planning this assault on the Capitol. But now we've got Nancy Pelosi and a few other Democrats saying we need a bipartisan 9-11 commission. And I think this would be a terrible mistake. First of all, bipartisan is by definition, if you're talking about the people of Washington, D.C., a mistake. I think if you poll Democrats and Republicans all across the country who are not elected officials, they would say, sure, you know, we want to know what's going on equally, both of us. But... The guys in Washington, D.C., many of whom were apparently complicit in this and who even after the Capitol was stormed, 140 of them said, hey, to hell with the election. We want Donald Trump. I don't think that you're going to find that they are going to have much to say about this that would be worth listening to, frankly. And this whole bipartisan thing, these kinds of commissions tend to produce just totally milquetoast outcomes. I mean, consider the Warren Commission or the 9-11 Commission, both of which had huge holes in them, and uh, both of them were viewed as either eh or possibly even cover-ups. And there are huge questions that America deserves answers to, and we deserve answers to now. For example, a report was just released by the Inspector General's Office of the Capitol Police. This came out in the New York Times yesterday. It's not yet public, but the Times read it and they excerpted parts of it that were apparently not classified. And these are some of the quotes from some of the people who were heading to the Capitol. That the Capitol Police intercepted Capitol Intelligence Unit and told the police about three days before January 6th. It's not like these guys weren't warned, right? Quote, be ready to fight. Congress needs to hear glass breaking, doors kicked in, and blood from their BLM and Pantifa slave soldiers being spilled. And I'm not sure why they're putting a P on the front of Pantifa, but that's that's what he did. And the message continues, get violent. Stop calling this a march. Now, this came out of the FBI's field office. They intercepted this and they passed it along to the Capitol Police. Get violent. Stop calling this a march or a rally or a protest. Go there ready for war. We get our president or we die. 
in all caps, nothing else will achieve this goal. And so the Capitol Police laid this out. I mean, again, three days before the riot, they had these intelligence assessments from the FBI and from other sources. And the Capitol Police, this was an internal assessment, quote, Supporters of the current presidency, January 6, 2021, is the last opportunity to overturn the results of the presidential election. The sense of desperation and disappointment may lead to more of an incentive to become violent, which is exactly what happened. And the intelligence unit of the Capitol Police said, quote, Unlike previous post-election protests, the targets of the pro-Trump supporters are not necessarily the counter-protesters as they were previously. In other words, they're not just going to beat up some Antifa folks or go after Black Lives Matter. Back to the quote, but rather Congress itself is the target on the 6th. Now, this is the Capitol Police's own intelligence unit telling senior leadership, the Capitol Police, this is what's going on. Quote, propensity to attract white supremacists, militia members, and others who actively promote violence may lead to a significantly dangerous situation for law enforcement and the general public alike. So why didn't they share this with the average cops, with the 200 and some odd police officers who were there on that day who were charged with holding that building. Why didn't they tell them what was coming on? Why did they basically bury this? Why was it that when the Capitol Police said we would like at the very least less lethal weaponry, what's called less lethal, less, you know, less than a gun, we would like things like, for example, stun grenades, rubber bullets, the stuff that they routinely fire at protesters, gas, tear gas, things like that. They apparently use some of that, although it appears that some of it might have come from the protesters as well. But even the shields, the shields that these guys carry to protect themselves in a riot situation from having things thrown at them or having people try to beat them with flagpoles and stuff. The shields that they were using were old shields that in many cases cracked because they hadn't been properly stored. The new shields that they had used just six months earlier on June 2nd or 20th when Black Lives Matter did a vigil in Washington, D.C., those shields were locked away in a bus. They couldn't get to them because nobody knew where the key was. The key was apparently in the hands of senior leadership. I mean, all this raises a really important question. What did senior leadership know and why did they cover this up? Why did they hide this? Why did they tell them to stand down? What happened here? I mean, these guys thought that they could stop the electoral count, that they could assassinate Pence and Pelosi, and that the 12th Amendment would then let them put Donald Trump into office. And by the way, this worked twice before for the GOP. There was the Stop the Steal rally back in 2000 down in Florida that was organized in part by Roger Stone that actually stopped the U.S., caused the U.S. Supreme Court to stop the recount in Florida that had been mandated by the Florida Supreme Court and thus hand the election to George W. Bush, even though it turned out that Al Gore got more votes than George Bush. And similarly, in 1876, Sam Tilden won the popular vote, won the Electoral College vote. But over this issue of Reconstruction, they were able to get it thrown to the House of Representatives and Rutherford B. Hayes ended up as president, even though he lost both elections. This is what they thought they could do. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And frankly, I think they thought they would be richly rewarded for it. Trump would start giving them promotions. He'd declare martial law. So no commission, thank you. I don't want a commission. I want prosecutors. I want actual, actual, you know, people who know how to put people in jail. I want them looking into this right now rather than a commission that's 50% Republicans who maybe have been in on this thing. It's just straightforward stuff. Down in Florida, we've got this company peddling a bogus miracle bleach cure. Donald Trump and his stupidity lives on, and apparently the gullibility of his followers continues to live on as well. Travis Getty's writing over at Raw Story, a Florida company, of course, is peddling a notorious industrial bleach solution as a miracle cure for new variants of the coronavirus 
Chlorine dioxide, a dangerous chemical compound used in textile and paper manufacturing, has previously been marketed as a cure for cancer, HIV, AIDS, and even autism. This is just crazy. Now this uh, company in Miami, uh, Aklo Nanotechnology Science, is uh, making this available, saying, you know, it will kill B117, it'll kill the coronavirus variants, and it'll kill everything else, including you. I mean, you know, you can make the case that bleach will kill coronavirus, but you don't want to drink it. This is what happens when you don't prosecute crime. And, I, you know, I hate to sound like Rudy Giuliani or some Republican back in the day, but if you just ignore crime by and large, you get more of it. Well, there are a certain number of people in our society who, for a variety of reasons, in some cases, it's just plain old personality disorders. In most cases, though, it's that they've been locked out for much of their lives by virtue of education, by virtue of geography, by virtue of you know race and the people around them and what the, how they're doing these things, who have been locked out of opportunities, quote, mainstream opportunities, normal opportunities. And as a consequence... They're good entrepreneurs. They understand how things work. They're smart people. As a consequence, they end up, you know, going into crime and making a living there. And it's unfortunate. But this is an old saw, right? We've known this for centuries, that you have to enforce laws. If you don't, then people start flouting them. Thousands of people invaded the Capitol building, or at least a thousand. And we've got a couple of hundred in jail well, actually, we've got a couple dozen in jail. We've charged a couple hundred, and now they're starting to cut deals and reduce charges and things like that. But the organizer of the White Lives Matter rally in Raleigh, North Carolina, this guy claims to be a National Guard member. At the same time that the National Guard is, and all our military are saying, well, we're trying to purge ourselves of these white supremacists and these white racists. <laughs> this guy, he goes by the name Bolts on Telegram. He's changing the name of his organization, his particular part, from the Proud Boys to the American Union Fascists. Let's just own the word, right? He says, it's effing cool. These people out here are helping the homeless. This is what they do. You know, they go out and feed homeless people and videotape themselves doing it to say, we're not all evil. It's like the Klan paying for those. We own a mile of the highway and we're cleaning it up. I remember back in the day, I mean, back in the 80s when we lived in Georgia, you know, you'd actually see signs like this. There's another group called Patriot Front. It's a neo-Nazi group that Bolt is using as a model. And they do and adopt the highway program down in the South, Patriot Front, which is a Klan organization, basically. On July 20th, Bolts expressed admiration for Adolf Hitler and George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder and commander of the American Nazi Party, on Twitter. In another tweet last December, he celebrated the Holocaust. He shared with his Twitters the uh, he attended the Unite the Right rally in Washington, D.C., he tweeted Richard Spencer, the white supremacist, in 2018. He wrote, This country is about to slide into a civil war in the next few years, and soon afterwards began appending the hashtag Civil War Number 2 to his tweets and things. This is all based, by the way, on a story by Jordan Green over at rawstory.com. We prepare for war, nothing less, said that on June 23rd. After the 2020 election, Bolts began to pin his hopes for a violent national reckoning on Donald Trump. He tweeted a meme that said, come on, do a civil war. He goes on to say, what will you do to secure the existence of your people, your nation, and your birthright? That secure the existence of your people, by the way, is a reference to the 14 words, the slogan that the white supremacists use. It was coined by David Lane, a member of the terrorist group The Order, who is now in jail for a 150-year sentence for murdering a progressive radio talk show host, a guy by the name of Alan Berg, back in 1984. Bolts discussed his uh, discloses enlistment in the National Guard. He says, I go to Virginia Beach once a month. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered a stand-down requiring commanders and leaders to address, of all units, to address extremism in the ranks. Do you think they're going to find this guy? I mean, this is what it's come to, right? And my concern is that if we get one of these milquetoast commissions looking into this, that we're going to get a milquetoast response, just like we did with 9-11, just like we did with the Warren Commission. Well, we think this, maybe that. I think that this needs to be conducted by real prosecutors. In fact, I think, frankly, there should be a special prosecutor. 
looking into this. Somebody who's independent of any of these agencies, because so many of these agencies have been corrupted, and there are still Trumpies in the Department of Justice. But bring in real prosecutors and actually prosecute these real crimes. And in the process, put it all out so we can all see it, so that we know exactly what happened. It will dramatically reduce the probability of it happening again. The crimes that were committed by slaveholders and uh, Confederates in the South were never really vetted after the Civil you War. They should have been. Tom Hartman program. I get that a lot of people thought it was common knowledge and everybody had read, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we need to be laying this stuff out. Megan Hatcher Hayes is here with us of uh, Indivisible.org, and we'll be getting into this whole question about D.C. statehood and, and all the other stuff that is D.C. statehood likely, you know, all this other stuff that Indivisible is working on right now. It's, it's pretty comprehensive. So all that said, the piece that I published over at HartmanReport.com is a title, Like the Nazis and the Fascists, that would be Hitler's Nazis and Mussolini's Fascists, the Republican Party must be purged. And it must not be allowed to live on with its own lost cause like the Confederacy did. And I lay this right out. President Joe Biden has basically stopped negotiating with Republicans. I'm pretty sure CNN heard Roger Wicker, the uh, the Republican senator from Louisiana, saying, well, uh, you know, uh, Biden's $600 billion uh, infrastructure. And I'm like, what? What happened to the $2.1 trillion? Oh, the Republicans are trying to reinvent it. I see. Now I get it. So, uh, but, you know, bottom line, Joe Biden has largely said, okay, you know, we're not going to negotiate with these people anymore. And the reason why, and, you know, of course, Biden hasn't said this, but I think it's becoming fairly obvious, the Republican Party is no longer a legitimate political party. It's just not. In fact, there's this group, it's called the Global Party Survey, globalpartysurvey.com or .org. I don't recall which, but it's, it's right out there. Some work done at Harvard and in the U.S. and and Sydney University in Australia. And the researchers note, first of all, they drew on a survey data from uh, 1,800 party and election experts, uh, 21 core items to estimate key ideological values, issue positions, and populist rhetoric. And they examined 1,127 political parties in 170 countries. And what they found was that the Democratic Party is kind of right in the right solidly in the in the norm for Demo- for democracies. Uh, the Democratic Party functions much like its its counterparts in Canada or Germany or France or England or you know whatever it may be. But the Republican Party, today's modern Republican Party in the United States, it is most similar to Hungary's Fidesz party or Turkey's AKP party or Poland's PIS party. And all three are fascist parties. I mean, this is, this is shocking, right? I mean, Turkey is the world's leading jailer of journalists, something that, uh, you know, Trump advocated aggressively, as does much of the Republican Party. Poland's political party regularly threatens to put judges in jail when they don't rule the way that the party wants. In Hungary, they scapegoat immigrants as a strategy to gain and grow political power. And Orban in Hungary is probably the best example of this. He, you know, when he took over Fidesz back in uh, 2010, this political party, it was sort of like the GOP. It was a, a regular conservative party. And then he started campaigning on Christian purity, you know, restoring Christian purity to uh, Hungary. And his slogan was making Hungary great again. This was 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And his rallies drew tens of thousands of people. His major campaign promise was building a wall across the southern part of Hungary to keep out Syrian refugees. He, by the way, kept that promise. He built that wall. He altered the nation's constitution so he could gerrymander places so that he'd always win elections. He's packed the courts so completely. Sort of like Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump putting 270 people in our federal courts. He's packed the courts so completely that he never, he never loses cases anymore. His party has rewritten textbooks to talk about refugees entering the country are a threat because it can be problematic for different cultures to coexist. And then he started locking up refugee children in cages. When the Hungarian Helsinki Committee complained about the children in cages, he said, well, we have to do that because they pose a security risk and endanger the continent's Christian culture and identity. See, he's just saying out loud what the Trumpkins and the Republicans are kind of saying in code. 
And five years to the week before American Nazis rallied in Charlottesville, a bunch of guys in Hungary marched down to the Roma community, well, the people that used to be called gypsies. Now it's kind of a slur, but the, the, if you're not familiar with the word Roma, that's, that's who it was. And uh, after the head of his party had called them animals and vermin, and so it was like a Charlottesville kind of rally and, and they, you know, with torches saying, we will burn your houses down. So how did this happen in the United States? Well, the first step was in 76 and 78 when a new Republican majority, thanks to Richard Nixon on the Supreme Court, ruled that if billionaires or corporations want to own politicians, want to throw money into the political sphere, that that's not corruption which is what we used to call it, or bribery, which is what we used to call it. That is uh, really just free speech. It's not money. It's free speech. First Amendment protected free speech. And so, you know, here we go. And now you've got billionaire networks that are actually like the Koch network is actually bigger than the Republican Party. And they do not want their taxes raised to pay for your social programs. The second step was in the 90s when Newt Gingrich arrived in D.C. with his contract on America, which boiled down to basically tax cuts and deregulation. The third step was Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you know, just saying now out loud what Nixon and Reagan and both Bushes, you know, with the Willie Horton ads and everything else, were saying that the Republican Party post-1965 is now officially the party of white supremacy. Democratic Party left that behind in 65. And then the fourth step is the classic fascist strategy. It's called the big lie. Mussolini's big lie was that Italy got screwed at the end of World War I, that they really didn't lose. That was Hitler's first big lie, too, or his, actually his big lie throughout the thing was that Germany had been stabbed in the back, was his, was his phrase. Stabbed in the back by, by uh, socialists and Jews who had negotiated the end of World War I. And they stabbed, uh, in the, I mean, this, Hitler went with us. And then, and then Trump came along with his big lie, which is that he actually won the 2020 election, which he did not. He, he lost it. And, 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 you know, the biggest part of his big lie is that there is this massive voter fraud, especially in black cities like Detroit, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Atlanta. I mean, this, and so now you've got a Republican Party that is so completely controlled by billionaires who don't want their taxes to go up that even really popular programs like COVID relief, they are 100% opposed to. You've got a Republican Party that has now embraced white supremacy, and you've got now, you know, Tucker Carlson pitching the same thing on Fox News. He doubled down on his whole great replacement theory that uh, anonymous forces are trying to, well, this is not his words, but mine, but are trying to replace white people in America. Right. I'm of the opinion that the Republican Party needs to either be torn down and rebuilt from the bottom up by the never-Trumpers. There's still some Republicans out there. Or it needs to be banned, purged, done away with. And if it's purged, we can't let them continue their big lie about election fraud. Like, you know, like the South continued their lost cause. This is the Tom Hartman program. So what say you? Am I missing something here about the GOP or about what we might do about it? Are there any solutions that you can think of? Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi. Well, a couple of points. One would be about Hungary. They've got kind of a history of being sort of a right-wing nation anyway. When there was the Austria-Hungarian Empire, the Magyars, who are Hungarians, they were like the ruling people in that upper Balkans region. They ruled the Rus. They saw themselves as being better than the Serbians or the Croatians or the Slovenes. There's a history there. So, and then Italy with Mussolini, uh, Italy was on the Allies. But we have that they, similar they hell, history, side. Dennis. We've got a 400-year history of white supremacy. Oh, exactly. So that's what I'm, I'm kind of making a comparison. Uh, it, it's, there, there's no surprise that someone like Orban would become the dictator for life in Hungary, as he has. Yeah, and, and Italy, yeah. Italy was on the Allies. Their problem with Mussolini was that they didn't add any colonial territory after World War One. And he was, he had a beef about that. Yeah, well, that was his whole sales pitch. Mussolini's was, you right. know, we're going to re restore the empire in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Dennis, thank you. Thank you. Excellent points all.
quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. On the line with us is Megan Hatcher Mays, a lawyer and the director of democracy policy at indivisible.org. Megan's Twitter handle is important Megan, M-E-A-G-A-N, or Indivisible Team. And uh, Megan, welcome back to the program. There are a couple of obvious priorities, you know, overcoming the filibuster, making D.C. a state, the For the People Act that will not be able to pass without overcoming the filibuster. Where do we start and where is Indivisible starting? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to do. I know everyone's still sort of like in this sort of exciting moment where it's like, oh, wow, Trump has finally gone. We can finally do some stuff. But we haven't been able to get as much done as I think a lot of activists would have hoped. And part of the reason is because of the filibuster. The filibuster is blocking us from bringing up really popular pieces of legislation for a vote because, you know, especially when it comes to democracy reform, there just aren't 10 Republicans in the Senate who would join the other 50 Democrats in fixing our democracy. So that's been a challenge. The good news is, is that I know everyone's got all of their attention focused on Joe Manchin because he has been pretty vociferously against the idea of um, eliminating the filibuster outright, as well as Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. We've made a lot of headway with other moderate Democrats who you might not expect to be so excited about getting rid of the filibuster. And a lot of that comes down to the grassroots that we know. We've had our groups in Colorado and in Maine and in California even pushing their senators um, in the right direction on the filibuster. And we've gotten commitments from Dianne Feinstein. We've heard really good things out of the new senators in Georgia saying they don't want the filibuster to get in the way of voting rights. Amy Klobuchar, who's a pretty moderate Democrat, has said she wants to get rid of the filibuster. Tina Smith, also of Minnesota, says she wants to get rid of it. So we're making headway. We've just got two big sort of Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema-sized targets left to go before we can really start to some of these major structural problems facing our democracy at the moment. What's the best way to reach out to them or influence them? I realize that on, on the one side, you've got, I mean, every politician vulnerable to pressure from from their base, from Mm -hmm. the grassroots, and also obviously from lobbyists and whatnot. But also, you've got the possibility of a Joe Lieberman kind of situation, or probably Jim Jeffords is a better example. I I lived in Vermont when Jim Jeffords left the Republican Party. The Senate was 50-50. George W. Bush was president. And that flipped the Senate from Republican control to Democratic control. It was a huge crisis for the Republican Party. They never Mm -hmm. thought that leaning on Jim Jeffords would produce that outcome. It did. You know, Mm -hmm. how do we do this in a way that doesn't blow up in our faces? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, again, Joe Manchin is very moderate, but I don't think he really would ever want to become a Republican. Maybe I'm naive, but we'll see. Well, Jim Um, Justice, the the governor of of West Virginia did. (laughs) You know, he was elected as a Democrat and he flipped party affiliation. Now, granted, that was in 20, I think that was right after the 2016 election, wasn't it? After he he and Trump came into office together. Yeah. So it's kind of a different time, but forgive the interruption. Oh, it's okay. So I think that the goal in general, regardless of who you're talking to about the need to get rid of the filibuster, is not to say, oh, you know, 
you know this old Senate rule? You don't really even need to get into the weeds of Senate procedure and rules and all that stuff. The important thing is that whatever it is that motivates you to be a part of this movement, to be a progressive and to, you know, vote and go out there and vote for the person that you like, whatever that issue is, whether that's gun safety or labor law or democracy or climate change, all of that stuff is getting blocked by the filibuster. And so I think for folks like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, it's a matter of, you know, looking at their priorities. Right now, I don't think there is a priority out there that you could get 10 Republicans to support. You know, I know that Joe Manchin has really strong relationships to labor in West Virginia. He obviously cares a lot about health care. You know, if we want to fix those things, we have to get rid of the filibuster. He wrote a whole op-ed about how he thinks, you know, he could find bipartisan support for democracy reform. I don't think that that's quite right, but give it a shot. Maybe he will find those 10. But if not, we really need to figure out a way forward. And I do actually think that at the end of the day, Joe Manchin is not going to want to be the one solely responsible for blocking pretty much every single piece of legislation together or from going forward just because he wasn't able to find any Republicans to join him. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, he did say that in his op-ed that he felt that Democrats had a responsibility to work with Republicans, but that Republicans had the responsibility to stop saying no to everything. So I think that's really kind of a key piece of that op-ed that got glossed over. I was very mad about it, too. But I think what he really is saying is that I want to give them the chance, but I don't want to give them Mm -hmm. a full-on veto. So I think we'll have to kind of wait and see what happens there. But Senator Manchin has his priorities, and I think at a certain point he's going to realize that there is probably not a path forward with bipartisan support in, the, in this current iteration of the Senate. Well, let's hope that, that this is just the dance that he has to do to be able to say when he does, you know, pull the trigger as a you know, terrible metaphor in this day and age, when he does choose to end the filibuster, to vote to end the filibuster, that he can say, you know, I tried 16 ways to Sunday. I did everything mm-hmm. possible and exactly. they wouldn't go along. I mean, uh, you know. exactly. now, but what about Kristen Sinema? I mean, she came up in local politics. She started out as a moderate. She became a Bernie Sanders progressive. She was big on Bernie and his positions. That got her into the Senate. And now all of a sudden, she's like wanting to caucus with the Republicans on some issues. What's going yeah. on with her? Such a good question. I think our Arizona groups want to know the exact same thing. You know, our folks in Arizona fought really hard to help her beat McSally, and she did. And I think it's been really disappointing to see her get into the Senate and kind of throw up her hands and say, well, nothing I can do here, whether that's kind of voting against the minimum wage, which was really insulting, to refusing right. to to even consider the possibility of eliminating the filibuster. I mean, we're We're in crunch time right now as far as our democracy goes, and she should understand this better than almost anybody in the Senate other than Senator Warnock and Senator Ossoff. Arizona has – she should understand this better than anyone because just like Georgia, Arizona is facing a slew of anti-democratic, little d-democratic, anti-democratic voter suppression bills you know, racist suppression bills requiring very strict voter ID. These are the sorts of things that create those long lines that we see every November. This is going to affect her personally if Arizona is successful in targeting specific types of voters from participating in elections. And we cannot pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act unless we get rid of the filibuster. So she says she's a supporter of those two bills, but she also needs to support a path forward to get it done. And I know that our groups in Arizona are ready to help her see the light in that particular regard. So my understanding is that the John Lewis Voting Act basically is restoring the Voting Rights Act, things like preclearance and those kinds of issues, Mm -hmm. whereas the For the People Act kind of standardizes elections across the country so it's harder for Republicans to play games and create long lines and all that kind of stuff. Is that an accurate uh, characterization, and are they equally important? Yeah, you really need to do them together. So what the For the People Act does is set sort of like minimum standards for federal elections, although that would have the effect of just affecting all elections because states don't have the money or the funds to run two separate, like, parallel tracks of elections. So for the purposes of this conversation, it would set minimum standards for federal elections, which would mean that no state could give you any less. They couldn't deny you rights below that threshold. So that's what the For the People Act does. And it also has a lot of really good campaign finance reforms, disclosure requirements, ethics requirements for the executive branch and elsewhere. It actually requires presidential candidates to turn over their tax returns, things like that. So it's a good government bill. It deals with elections and election security and election integrity, but it also deals with making sure that the government is trustworthy, making sure that the people who work for the government are ethically moral and ethically upright. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Act restores the voting 
Voting Rights Act, just like you said, to prevent bad yeah. stuff from going into effect. There you go. Megan Hatcher-Mays, Democracy Policy Director at Indivisible.org. One of the great sites out there. Important Megan and Indivisible team on Twitter. Megan, thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks, Tom. I'm not sure that this is another dimension of it. I think the media thinks this is another dimension of this whole vaccine refusal thing being tied in with toxic masculinity and the whole, you know, cult of I'm the big man, I'm a Trump boy. Senator Rick Scott gave Donald Trump his participation award, this little bowl that kind of looked like the third place in a golf trophy. But, you know, Trump has got people absolutely cowed. He's got donors, he's got Republican office holders. And increasingly, they're buying into Trump's lies. I mean, and this is incredible. CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, 68% of people want him to seek another term. 95% want him to advance his policies and agendas. Well, what were his policies? Demonizing people of color, making racist comments, denigrating women, highlighting, holding up, valuing misogyny, and giving tax cuts to billionaires and big corporations. That's literally all he did. Well, in deregulating industry, the first piece of legislation that he signed allowed coal companies in West Virginia to start dumping, or all over the country actually, to start dumping mining waste poison into local rivers so that they can poison down downriver water supplies, but they can increase their profits. 95% of all the people at CPAC want him to continue this? Want the, want the Republican Party to continue this? I mean, where do these folks come from? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Check in with Debbie Hines, our legal analyst, and find out what happened today in the Chauvin trial. I am DebbieHines.com, her website. I am Debbie Hines, her Twitter handle. Debbie, welcome back. So what happened today? Well, Tom, it's almost over. We're just about getting ready to give the baby to the jury. So the defense today rested their case um, in the well-awaited decision of whether or not Derek Chauvin would testify in his own behalf was answered with an overwhelming no. I honestly didn't expect him to testify because he would have done himself no good and he would have done the prosecution a lot of good because he is not a sympathetic-looking character to begin with. And then the fact that he has had all these prior incidents which would have been able to have been brought up by the prosecution and cross-examination. So I don't think it was Mm. any surprise to many lawyers that he did not testify. But there was some interesting stuff going on afterwards because the prosecution is allowed to have what we call rebuttal evidence, rebuttal witnesses. And rebuttal means not going over everything you've already gone over to dispute what the defense said, but where the defense has brought up something new, then you are allowed to say, no, that wouldn't work. So there was an issue about the defense bringing up carbon monoxide in mm-hmm. Mr. Floyd's cause of his death. And that's where some fireworks got going because evidently the prosecution in Hennepin County had a report on carbon monoxide in regards to Mr. Floyd, but had not provided it to the defense. And unlike what we see on Law and & Order and all these TV shows, it doesn't work that way in the real world. You have to provide everything that you're going to provide in court ahead of time, not on the last day of trial. So maybe if it had been early on, it might have been better, but not the last day of trial, the last half an hour. You can't spring something on the defense. So anyway, the prosecution did bring back their preliminary expert who did testify that, no, carbon monoxide had nothing to do with Mr. Floyd's death, and obviously it was the obvious thing that we all saw for nine minutes and 29 seconds, which was Derek Chauvin. So it goes to the jury for a closing argument for Monday. The jury was instructed that they would be sequestered, which means that they could not go home until they either deliver a verdict, get a mistrial, or come back and say we can't do anything else. So the judge told them to just pack up as much stuff as you think you might need and hope for the best that you won't be out that long. So they're sticking them in a hotel. I had a caller a a couple of days ago who said that when the defense asked for a sequester of the jury and the judge turned it down, this was, you know, after Mr. Wright was murdered, then that was like setting up an appeal. What are your thoughts on that? 
I mean, the defense can raise that on appeal, but you have to, you know, you can raise anything on appeal, but you have to show that by proof that the decision of the judge was not within its discretion and that it was harmful to your client. And that doesn't mean just because the jury comes back with a, you know, a guilty verdict that, oh, we should have sequestered the jury at that point. So it doesn't mean that the defense always has a burden. It kind of flips on appeal. The defense has an uphill climb on, on appeal to prove that an issue was what you should have done, that it was harmful, and it resulted in the verdict that we got. But sequestrations are very difficult on jurors. It's not known if it works for or against the prosecution or for or against the defense. But it's very hard to, you know, give up your cell phone, stay in a hotel with a bunch of strangers, which is what it means. So basically upsets them and their upset may show up in a whole variety of unpredictable ways. Is that what you mean? Yes, you don't know which way it cuts against. So it's not like sequestration is good for the defense and bad for the prosecution or vice versa. You just really don't know. So I just think the judge did a, you know, did a good call. I mean, but it's no way to really know which, which way it would have gone because literally it means exactly what I said. You're in a hotel in the middle of a pandemic with a bunch of strangers in masks and you are not able to be on your cell phones and communicate with your family members. Right. I think it's fairly obvious what the prosecution's summation is going to be. It seems like though the defense, every single one of their defenses has been knocked down. How are they going to build a defense? So like for I the said, summation? on both sides, right, on both sides, the defense as well as the prosecution, they're talking to the jurors that they believe are in support of them. So when the defense is talking to the jurors that they believe is in support of them, that can give them something to go back into the jury room to argue look, they said that it was carbon monoxide, they said it was this, they said it was that. That's all the defense is basically trying to do. But in the real world, the defense is just hoping for that one or two jurors who has an inherent racial bias, because we've all seen what happened. We've heard from 35 plus witnesses from the prosecution as to how it happened. And we've already seen and heard what caused the uh, death of George Floyd, which was Derek Chauvin. So it's just really the defense is just hoping there is one person in there that can make basically side with them and hopefully that won't happen yeah one little bit of doubt that that one person can hang on to it like a life raft in the ocean i get it right debbie hines thank you debbie thanks for dropping by again today thank you it's great talking with you i am debbie hines.com the website you can also her twitter handle thank you I, debbie very very nice talking with you and i really appreciate your, ex- thank you, your expertise You're listening to Tom Hartman. David in North Miami, Florida. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Remember, there were those wackos, wackos literally gunning for her, hoping to mm-hmm. kidnap the so-called try and presumably execute her. So, yes, unfortunately, people were literally gunning for her, not just metaphorically yeah. like you were describing, sadly. You're right. You wonder, because she's unwilling to impose a statewide lockdown order, which is what the CDC yesterday officially recommended. Dr. Walensky, who runs, I believe runs the CDC, at least is one of the point people for the Biden administration, came right out and said, if we surge vaccines, it's not going to help this explosion of viruses that you have right now. Over the months, it'll show up, but you need to do something right now. Shut the damn state down. And Governor Whitmer is unwilling to do that. I'm wondering, is she unwilling to do that? Because A, she doesn't want to stir up the crazies. B, she's already, you know, maybe she even has PTSD around this. I mean, how would you feel if somebody plotted seriously and legitimately with the weapons and the means and the ability to kidnap you and your family, kill your spouse, kill your children, take you to another state, televise a show trial of you and then hang you? I mean, that that was their agenda, right? I would find that rather... Rather stressful, rather than alarming. Chris in Fresno, California. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? What's on my mind is this whole First Amendment, the people that are basically Trumpers or on the right, feeling that they're offended and that they're being discriminated against, basically, for what I see as their racist and discriminatory views. Well, in Fresno, California, I'll give a quick example. Right now, we're in the midst of, in the LGBT community, trying to save this theater 
that hosts a lot of LGBTQ film festivals, other acts. There's many bars in the area. That's what it's zoned for. And the district mm-hmm. is called Tower District. Well, we've had many protests about the sale of this theater because it's going to be sold to a very conservative anti-gay church. And mm-hmm. with these protests that have been happening, of course, we've had the trolls come out just to counter protests, basically. And the people that have been out there are the Proud Boys. Well, luckily, through some sleuthing and on the Internet, we come to find out one of these Proud Boys was at the Stop the Steal rally in Sacramento and has been at other events. But he's been in disguise. He's gone by the name Sheepdog. He's worn dark glasses, mask, and everything, but he's had arm tattoos, and he was identified and called out as being a Fresno police officer. And this last week, he was fired, thankfully. Now he's going out on the local conservative radio shows crying about how, you know, he's being discriminated against. But this guy has put out endless videos of hate speech online. You can go and look it up. It's really sad. Probably shouldn't surprise us. What is so saddening Chris, or infuriating, or whatever the appropriate word is, is that the kind of speech that these guys are engaging in was acknowledged right across the board to be the fringe prior to the Trump candidacy. Now they have mainstreamed this in the GOP. So you've got a, you know, a quarter of America, the Republican quarter of America saying, oh yeah, okay, I guess that's fine with me. And now we've got these you know, White Lives Matter rallies and all this other kind of stuff. It's just amazing. There's some interesting stuff here. Chelsea Clinton is saying, hey, it's time to bar off Twitter uh, Tucker Carlson because, you know, he's just turned into a white racist troll. He's promoting this uh, white replacement theory and all this kind of stuff. There's a fascinating piece of reporting that Travis Geddes is laying out over on Raw's story that the Trump administration via Paul Manafort initially, but others as well, basically was in bed with Russia throughout. The, now, this is 2016. Whoa, where do, what, you know, what do you do with that? Where do you go with that? Anyhow, your thoughts on commissions, on inspections, on crimes, on how we hold people accountable? What do we do to do this? You know, I think that there's a lot here, frankly. And simple reality of commissions not being the places where you prosecute people I'm not opposed to commission altogether. I think, you know, as some sort of a roundup or a wrap up after all the details are done. But I want prosecutors going after these folks. Nikki in Joplin, Missouri, your thoughts. What's up? We should have an independent prosecutor for this. And I don't want people to ever forget what happened because it is so dangerous. I'm reading a book right now called Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist by Eli Shuffalo, mm-hmm. and it's hard to read. I wanted to know what you thought about people not forgetting what happened, how the other you know, mainstream media needs to talk about it more like you do. And what can we do? Yeah. I think contacting your members of Congress and saying, you know, we want serious prosecutions here before we have any kind of commission. I'm guessing that they'll announce a commission at some point, and it'll probably go beyond uh, January 6th. But the problem is, as long as 95% in all probability of the elected Republican Party, certainly in Washington, D.C., and and apparently in states all across the nation, was just fine with the effort to tear down the election and hand it to Donald Trump and end democracy in America. And I don't want those people on a commission that's looking into what happened. I mean, it just seems seems ridiculous, Josh Hawley. Is a senator in Missouri, so. Mr. Let's give the uh, raised fist to the traitors. It's breathtaking. Nikki, I got to run, but thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. David in Seattle. Hey, David, your thoughts? Hello, Tom. A little while ago, I heard you saying that we might be better off without the Republican death cult. Last week, I heard you say what everyone says, that we need a two-party system. My question is... Do we need a two-party system if one of them are the Republicans? My personal opinion on this is that the never-Trumpers within the GOP 
maybe the Lisa Murkowski's, she voted to impeach Trump and she's stood up to him on a number of occasions. And in response to that, he's promised to go to Alaska and campaign against her in the primary. I think that these Republicans need to take back their political party. We need an opposition party. We need debate in this country. You can't just have one party just saying, this is the way it's going to be. I know that that's what the Republicans have been fighting for and what they kind of achieved for a while during the Trump administration, but it's not a healthy thing for a democracy. You need to have debate. So I am hopeful, but it's not looking good. David, thank you for the call. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? We do not need another cover-up commission. We need exactly what you are recommending, which is independent prosecutor. I am not interested in a bunch of politicians sitting around in Washington, D.C. saying, we think we've figured out what happened. I would like I to see a courtroom. I want to see judges and yeah. prosecutors. I want to see these people nailed. You know, they also had bear spray and some other kinds of chemicals. We still don't know what it was that killed Officer Sicknick. And they had flagpoles that were specifically heavy duty. They had a gallows. Right? That should have been a hint. Right? Hey, they're building a gallows on the White House lawn. Gee, I wonder why. Is that just, you know, for a movie? Okay. So on January 4th, after all this information comes in, the acting director of the acting secretary of defense, Chris Miller, a guy that Donald Trump had just put into office because the previous secretary of defense said, you know, I really don't like sending our soldiers down to Lafayette Square to act like stormtroopers. Not going to go along with your stop the steal stuff. So he puts Chris Miller in just a week or two earlier, Trump toady. And Chris Miller says, this memorandum responds to your January 4th memorandum. So in other words, this is to the Secretary of the Army, the guy who's in charge of the Guard for D.C. He had asked for permission for the Guard to help out the Capitol Police. And Chris Miller says, basically, no. This is in response to your request. He said, you are authorized to approve the requested support subject to my guidance below and subject to consultation with the Attorney General. Without my subsequent personal authorization, you are not authorized to do the following. You are not authorized to be issued weapons, ammunition, bayonets, batons, or ballistic protection equipment such as helmets and body armor. And now we know we have dozens, if not over 100, traumatic brain injuries from people being beaten over the head with these poles and things. You are not allowed to interact physically with protesters, except when necessary in self-defense. You are not allowed to employ any riot control agents. No flashbangs, tear gas. No, you can't do it. Sorry. Now, keep in mind, this is the acting secretary of defense, the guy who sits in the cabinet with Donald Trump. You are not allowed to share equipment with law enforcement agencies. You are not allowed to use intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance to conduct incident awareness and assessment activities. In other words, you are going to be blind. You may not know what's going on. You are not allowed to employ helicopters or other air assets. Same reason. You are not allowed to conduct searches, seizures, arrests, or a similar law enforcement activity. You can try and keep those people out of the Capitol, but you can't arrest them. And you are not allowed to seek support from any non-DC National Guard units. At all time, the DC National Guard will remain under the operational administrative command of the commanding general, who reports to the Secretary of Defense through the Secretary of the Army. And so here's this clear chain of command. And for three hours while the Capitol was under attack, you had members of Congress trying to contact Chris Miller, the acting secretary of defense, and saying, please rescind your order and send some troops. And he didn't take the phone call. See, keep in mind what these guys thought was going to happen. They thought that they were going to kill Pelosi and Pence, that that would stop the count, the count would then be thrown into the House of Representatives like it was in 1876, close to what happened in 2000, where they stopped the count. The result of that would be that Donald Trump would be made president again. And then Trump would come in and pardon them all. I mean, this is what these guys believed, that Trump was going to become the strongman dictator. He was going to pardon them all. There were going to be new rules that the First Amendment was going to be done away with, no more right to protest, we're in charge now, we the guy with the white guys with guns. I mean, this is pretty unambiguous. 
Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's up? There's one statistic that I would really love to see, and I would like to interview anybody that was involved in the, in the police aspects of that, uh, that coverage there. Find out how many of them were registered Republicans and how many of them voted for Trump. You know, and then you can You're talking on January 6th? January 6th, yeah. You know, and the, the I doubt there's hierarchy. any any re- registered Democrats at all there. Republicans are independents. You know what I mean? And then you, then, then you yeah. can kind of see why that that was allowed to happen. Because I'll guarantee you, if those were Black Lives Matters and Hispanic and Muslims peacefully protesting or even and created any problems, they would have shot them the same day. There's no question about that. You know, yeah. that's the scary part. You have to understand that this whole Jim Crow ideology is in, in the forefront now, based on the four years with. Trump because every time that man opened his mouth, he was directly or indirectly killing people, you know. Now he's taken the throne because of the, the media aspect at Fox News. You know, that's the biggest terrorist organization on the planet right now. It's scary stuff, watching what they say every day. And how many of the 74 million people that voted for that lunatic are watching them on a daily basis, you know. That's not going to go yeah, away. I, I wouldn't characterize Fox News as a terrorist organization, but they certainly are throwing in with terrorist organizations. Yeah, I mean, you got to look at the bigger picture because, you know, misery sells, basically. That's what the media is all about. It's demographics yeah. and market share. And the more misery, misery you report, the more people watch and the more products they can sell. So whether it's, you know, MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News, the more people watch, the more money they make, basically. And that's the bottom line, you know. Yeah, and it's not a healthy only, one. No, it isn't. That's that's the answer to what's going on. You know, if you got Coke Industries and Mercers and, you know, Fox News and stuff, they, the economic influence they have on this country makes a big difference. There's no question about it. And now we have these companies saying, no, we're not going to go along with it. And yet Judd Legum and David Sirota keep busting these companies for saying, you know, we're not going to give any more money to these 2022 or 2020 deniers. And, and we're not going to give any money, more money to the conspiracy nuts. And then they turn around and give more money. Talk is cheap unless this stuff really gets into a certain plan. And you know who I'd like to really see and get involved in, in theory that they have liberal ideas? George Soros and uh, Gates and Buffett. The, the amount of income they could put into this program for public education and, and consumer rights and stuff would be amazing, and I don't see them doing it properly. You know? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Bob in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind? Hey, um, regards the shields being locked away in the bus that you brought up, Tom. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the memo that was written by the person that Trump appointed. I think his name was Christopher. I can't remember his name, but you'll know who I'm talking about. He was yeah, Christopher was his first Pentagon. name. You're talking his yeah, his his acting uh, Secretary of Defense. Yeah, I looked it up online, read it. It's quite shocking. I wouldn't have known about it, and that you brought it up, or Rachel brought it up, or somebody. But mm-hmm. that's got to be very damning because. He was appointed by Trump. That that links Trump to the insurrection. That one memo. Yeah. In that list, I believe it does talk about the shields and batons and other things, even though I don't have it in front of me either right now. I'm out for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good idea. But uh, the independent investigation is what's needed. Yeah. This is an example of how powerful being in power is that you can corrupt the entire system and you can appoint Trump appointed dozens of people in agencies so that he could control them. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think you nailed it. Kevin in Tracy, California. Hey, Kevin, what's up? The insurrection. And it's so hard to understand all the hate these people have. It's like they love hate. (laughs) And it's Mm -hmm. just so overwhelming. That's basically what I Hate typically, Kevin, hate doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Hate is usually the result of fear. And even when it's like revenge hate, it's really fear. It's a reaction to the fear that a person felt when they felt they were being done wrong. If you ask, you know, where is this hate coming from? Then I think that brings us back to Tucker Carlson and his great replacement theory that has been animating everybody from Tim McVeigh to the El Paso shooter to, you know, et cetera, that what they're afraid of, these are white men 
who are afraid that they are going to lose this position they have had in society for hundreds of years, where they could basically do anything they wanted and get away with it. They could do anything to women that they wanted and get away with it. They could do anything to people of color that they wanted and get away with it. They could even kill people and get away with it, you know, as long as it wasn't other white men. This is now being challenged, and I think it's scaring the hell out of them. They want that privilege. We've got a generation of young people growing up now who don't have that privilege or who see that privilege being challenged and absolutely understand the dynamic. I'd say, you know, the people who are under 20 right now, maybe under 30, um, they get that. And they're not going to be, although there's an aggressive effort to indoctrinate them going on on Facebook and YouTube and other social media, by and large, I don't think that they're going to be buying into it the, the way that the boomers and the Gen X and Gen Z generations did because their experience of life, their experience of media, their experience of everything is just completely different. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 